All right, uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to read with me. Uh, we'll be in Isaiah 7, Romans 1, and Matthew 1. They'll, passages will all be on the screen, uh, if you want to just read there, or you can just listen and close your eyes and listen. This is the, the fourth and last week of Advent, uh, and so we'll close our time uh, in Advent in the lectionary as we've done all of the season. Isaiah 7, starting at the 10th verse. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now from Romans chapter 1, introduction to the epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally from Matthew chapter 1, the 18th verse. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't just uh, have the ability to hold it in our hands easily and readily. We don't just have the ability to hear it, but we have the, the opportunity to be spoken to by the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that that's what will happen today for all of us, 
that we would not just read or hear the words on the page, but we would instead hear your voice speaking to us very clearly. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, the, the text today is drawing our, our attention to some specific things about the, the story, the origins uh, of Jesus. And if you've been with us, I've, I've talked to you about how Advent is not just preparation for Christmas time. In fact, the readings have been quite a bit further focused than that. So it may feel like, why then are we jumping back uh, to the birth stories if that's what Advent is actually about? And it's a good question, and we will come around to that. This set of readings is drawing your attention to Joseph, drawing your attention to Mary's, what will become her husband, Joseph. And uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, is, is not written in the same way as the Gospel of Luke. Most of what you remember as the classic Christmas stories come from the Gospel of Luke. They don't come from the Gospel of Matthew. If you notice here, you can, you can glance either side of this passage in your Bible, the birth of Jesus isn't talked about at all. It's, it's alluded to uh, in the first verse of the second chapter. It just happens. None of the story is about going to Bethlehem and shepherds and all that stuff. That's not here. Uh, in fact, this is pretty clearly a story from Joseph's perspective. All of the Mary stories, the Magnificat, the, her, the announcement of, of her own uh, carrying a baby, all that's in the Gospel of Luke. All of the statements of Mary treasuring these things in her heart, that's, that's in Luke. Matthew is not doing that. He is focusing much more on Joseph's perspective. And uh, Joseph just sort of disappears. He's, he has very little role to play in the Gospels at all. Uh, we see him one more time when Jesus is, is about 12, and it's, it's really as a partner, as a, as a tag team partner with Mary as they're looking for Jesus, but he's just gone. And so it's pretty unique that we have then this, his perspective. And Joseph uh, is, is a mystery to us. We don't know a, a lot about him. We don't know... Much of what happens, there's church tradition that grows up about him, that kind of the speculation about was, was he older and, and previously married? Was he, uh, does he die sometime? Which is probably pretty likely if an explanation of why he disappears and Mary seems to be walking around with Jesus alone uh, without Joseph. Um, Joseph is an interesting figure, but in a lot of ways he's super boring. Uh, I, I, my middle name is Joseph, and I always was like, what a lame Bible character, honestly. Uh, I, I kind of wanted a cooler one uh, with more stories. I get a few verses from here. Now, my name is, is Joseph because my grandfather's name was Jose, but Joseph. Um, that wasn't cool either, though, because I didn't know him. He died before I was born. So I have all these, like, gaps in my Joseph stories. Joseph is, is a guy uh, with, with some plans, and his plans get radically interrupted and changed. Uh, he and Mary are, are betrothed, which is not the same thing as just being engaged. They, this is part of a staged process of marriage. 
And this is a formal commitment that is initiated about a year before they get married. There's a contract. There's a public ceremony. If something like this happens where the woman becomes pregnant or the man is caught with another woman, it's not just like, well, the engagement is over. This is adultery. That's how it's viewed. And there has to be a formal divorce. You can hear it. Joseph says, I, I will divorce Mary because of what she's done. They're seriously committed to one another. Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, makes the same conclusion that anyone would make. She has cheated on me. But he's honorable and he says, I'm not going to press this adultery charge. I'm not going to make this a big deal like I could. We're just going to be done with this. He's, he's already decided that, it seems. It, this is probably not a great translation saying as he considered these things. It probably should be said as he was done considering these things. He comes to this conclusion. And then he has a dream. Notice Joseph doesn't even get the in-person angel visit like other people do. He just, he just has a dream, and the angel comes in a dream. And the angel says, this is what's up. Mary, Mary has not cheated on you. What has happened to her has happened by the Holy Spirit. Don't divorce her. Joseph wakes up, and he completely changes his plans. And he just goes with it. Probably, probably a great cost to himself. He probably has some diminished social status. It's probably pretty embarrassing. How do you go around and tell people, no, she didn't cheat on me. It's God that has impregnated her without a man. Like, really? Come on. His status probably goes down. And he doesn't get the benefits of a normal marriage. He doesn't, he doesn't sleep with his wife, who is pregnant, mysteriously and miraculously. Everything is different for Joseph. He changes his plan, and then he dies. I mean, there's some gap of time there, but nothing significant happens to him. Not from our perspective. You know, the... the Protestant church especially does a terrible job at really paying attention to Mary and how, how significant and important she is in the story. We kind of just run away from her because it's like a Catholic thing. We, we've gotten better about acknowledging Mary's probably pretty important. We should probably pay attention to who she, who she is and what she does. But Joseph is ignored more than Mary. What, Joseph is a passenger in the story. Why at all should we pay attention to him? But Joseph's story is probably more like what every other ordinary Christian should hope their story can become. Joseph has plans. He allows those plans to be interrupted by God. And in a move of radical obedience, he lays aside his plans. He does what God calls him to do. He dies and is forgotten. This is, this is what 
it lies ahead of almost all of us who will follow Jesus. We are not invited to be the star of the story. We are not invited to be a hero. We are not invited to accrue for ourselves a reputation or any sort of fame. And all of us, any of us, our hope should be that we would be able to be half as faithful and obedient as Joseph is. Joseph's story is not, it's not a footnote for us. It's not an asterisk. It's a significant story of Christian obedience in the life of somebody who follows Jesus. But, but there's more going on here in the text than just pointing to Joseph's faithfulness and obedience. Just like we are never invited to be the star of any kind of show, you are not meant to read the Bible and to read the story of these people and to say, ah, this is a story about Joseph or Mary or whatever, Samson. All of these stories are ultimately and fully about God. And, and Matthew is doing something here in his gospel that is pointing our eye towards, towards the person who will be Joseph's adopted son. Matthew's story starts with the genealogy. And both Matthew and Luke have genealogies, these stories of descendants of Jesus. And uh, Tim Mackey, who's behind the Bible Project, I was watching a, a sermon from him that Tim Swan pointed out to me. And he uh, helpfully points out that Matthew does not talk about the birth of Jesus. He talks about the origins of Jesus. In both Matthew 1, uh, the genealogy, and in this portion that we've read. And, and Matthew's genealogy is, is really strange. It's different from the genealogy of, of Luke, which has confused people. And there's a lot going on between those two things. But Matthew starts with Abraham and moves all the way down to Joseph, who will be the adoptive father of Jesus. And he arranges this genealogy into three sets of 14 names, which is really strange because generations don't tend to work out that way. And indeed, when the Bible has genealogies, you have to understand that, that biblical writers are not interested in biological succession. They're interested in telling you the story of a family. So, for example, when Joseph is referred to as son of David, we know that David is not his dad. He is a descendant of David. And this story of genealogies and families are written the same way. So why is it, has Matthew written this story to tell us with these three sets of 14s where Joseph comes from? It turns out, Ian Paul, a New Testament scholar, points out that in the practice of many people in the early, early church, ancient Near East, they would participate in this practice called uh, gematria, or however you want to say it, which is assigns a numeric value to names, providing numbers for letters. And they would get involved in all kinds of interesting rabbit trails this way. Fourteen is the number for David's name. 
And so three times this numeric value for David's name is written in to Jesus' story. And all along, Matthew is bringing to your attention the way that Jesus' heritage is tied up in the story of Israel at large as a descendant of Abraham and specifically in the story of David. Because in the, the dream, when Joseph has a dream and the angel comes to talk to him, he doesn't say, what up, Joe? He says, Joseph, son of David. It is, it is important for Matthew's readers, for us, to listen to the, to the fact that this is a Davidic household because the story of Israel has, has drawn close to the family of David. The people of Israel are, are meant to be the, this insertion of a rebellion against the kingdom of darkness and sin in the world. It's, it's supposed to be an overthrow of the powers and principalities that rule and govern this dark world. It is supposed to be the conquering of God in the world. And yet Israel itself has received the same sort of problems that the rest of the world has received. The story of Israel is, is marked all over the place by the powers of darkness and evil. And so David and his family arise as this person who's supposed to be this redemptive, rescuing figure, a king who will finally be faithful. The, the nation of Israel has been prepared for a good king. And immediately what follows from David's line is the same sort of problems that the rest of Israel has also had. So that in, in many ways, the descendants of David, the sons of David, are the worst failures of all. Our passage from Isaiah chapter 7 is a moment of the failing of the house of David. Ahaz is in the line. The kings are supposed to be these representatives of the righteousness of God. And he cannot answer the prophet with any kind of sincerity or integrity or faith at all. And the prophet tells him, fine, you can't even ask anything of God. So small, so non-existent is your faith. So snarky is your response. And he tells this king, that there will be a child as a sign to this faithless king, that God will rescue his people, and that God will give this title to this child, Emmanuel. And Matthew brings this thread into Joseph's story, making clear that in this moment, in Joseph, is present the full history of all of Israel's failure, of all of David's failure. So that Joseph, son of David, is the one who will be the adopted father of this one, who is given the name Jesus. But of course, Jesus isn't the name that he's given. That's the Greek name of the name that he's given. His name is not that name in the language that Joseph would have spoke. His name comes to us oftentimes in a shortened form, Yeshua, Yehoshua. It is the name that God will save. And God will save his people. 
his people. And what he says is, give him this name, Yehoshua. God will save. And he will save his people from their sins. Wait, so his name is God will save. And the angel says, he will save. Which one is it? Tim Mackey says, exactly. The, the, the combining of these ideas is already present right here in the beginning of the gospel. That the one who is named God will save is the one who will save his people from their sin. And he will be called this one from Isaiah chapter 7. Emmanuel, God with his people. So when Joseph is, is this key figure in the story, it is not because it's just Joseph, the faithful and obedient one, though he is. When Joseph is present in giving this name to his adoptive son, he is bringing all of the weight of Israel's history into that birth moment. And when he proclaims that name, this title, to Jesus, which is the Greek translation of this name, he is saying that this one will do the thing that my household could not do. And so Jesus becomes the heir, not just of David's promises, but all of the promises of Israel. This one will do the thing that both David and all of Israel was supposed to do. And what is he supposed to do? What, what is Israel supposed to do? What is David supposed to do? And what will only this one be able to do? It is not that they will depose kings. Anybody who's come to Jesus' story and says he's going to kick out Rome, he's going to deliver us from the conquerors, they will misunderstand what he is here to do. And right here at the beginning of this son of David story is a very clear mission. She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The problem with Israel is not any kind of outside invader. The problem with David's line is not that they are not canny enough political operators. The problem with the people that Jesus will see every day for his entire ministry is not the Romans. The problem for Israel, for David, for Jesus' people is sin. It is the problem of the whole world. We think that Israel is supposed to be set aside so they will not be sinners and that by being this example of perfection, then God will somehow fix the world. But Israel is set apart so that you and I can look at Israel and say, those people, apart from their dietary practices and animal killing policies and procedures, look remarkably like me. Because the problem with, with Israel and with David and these people that Jesus will speak to are the same problems that I have, that you have. We are sinners. We sin. Sin is the problem. Sin flows out of me all the time. 
It is not mere behavioral whoopsies. It is not slips of the mind. It is outright rebellion against God, conspiracy with everything that destroys what is good in the world. It is darkness that flows out of me. It is my own selfishness. It is my own self-interest. It is my own greed. It is my own quickness to judge and to be angry. It is my own sexual brokenness. It is my own poor relationship with creation. It is sin. It is my sin. Israel's sin is my sin. It is your sin. The problem that you have in the world comes from outside of you, yes. Terrible things happen to you and happen to me, yes. You and I are the problem ultimately with the world. It is not outside invaders. It is the inside conquest by the powers of darkness and evil in the world. It is our own participation. It is our own acknowledgement. It is our own assent to the voices of temptation that regularly come to you and me in which I say, yes, I will agree. I will participate. It is my desire. It is my habit. We are sinners. And any sort of explanation of what is going on in the world that does not include that is an incomplete description of the world. The loneliness, the isolation, the despair that you feel right now is in part flowing out of your own sin. Is it connected to, is it a result of other people's sins pressing in from the outside? Yes, 100%. There is no innocent party to be found in David's line. There is no innocent party to be found in Israel's day. There is no innocent party to be had in all of the story of Israel or in all of the story of humanity. And Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. What Joseph's family is a party to is the launching and proclamation of the true kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the real and good king, not because of the might of his own power to crush all of their political opponents, but because of his intention to lay waste to the things that have laid waste to the house of David, their idolatry. Their bottomless craving for all that God has not given to them in the time frame that they have demanded. Their ceaseless demand for control, for power, for glory. That is my problem and it is yours as well. The whole mission of Israel, of the kingship of David, is that Jesus, the God who will save, he is the one who will save his people from their sins. This is the king that has entered into the story. 
And if you are here today and you are caught in the grip of sin, I am not standing up here shaming you and saying you are worthless because you are a sinner. Hear me when I say this, because what the enemy of your soul will love to do is to take something that sounds 80% true and put enough poison in it to kill you. I am not saying here, you are a sinner, you are worthless, and you should feel ashamed. I am saying, you are a sinner. There are things in your life, as in mine, that are shameful. And you are so deeply loved. You are not worthless. You are so valuable to God that this king would take on the name God with us to come be with you and with me. And if you are here today caught in the grip of sin, Jesus is here to save you. Jesus is not here to berate you. Jesus is not here to hurl lightning bolts at you. Jesus is not here to ruin you. Jesus is here to save you because he loves you. And so it is, it is not, as we read Matthew chapter 1, as we read Isaiah 7, as we proclaim the thing that Paul is proclaiming in Romans chapter 1, we are not here proclaiming bad news that you are a sinner. We are proclaiming the truth that you already know about yourself. You know it. That's why so many things in your life are fracturing the way that they are. That's why you have so many things to hide. That's why you are so afraid of being known. You know, every one of us knows at some level of who we are, that we are in this company of Israelites. We are sinners. And so the truth is being brought into the light. It's an acknowledgement. You don't have to hide from it anymore. You don't have to turn your face from it anymore. It's just right there, out in the open. You're a sinner. And Jesus came for you. He's coming here now today to save you. And every other day ahead of you that you will struggle with sin, his name does not change. It is still God will save his people. If you are here for the thousandth time confessing sin repenting once more. His name will not change for you. This, the son of Joseph, son of David, is your king sent here to rescue you one more time. And when the list grows longer yet again, and you are back here to repent again, his name will not change. His genealogy is etched in history for you. He is the God who will save you from your sin. And this is Advent. We are not just looking back in our heads to the story of Jesus, to the birth of Jesus, to this one coming. What I'm proclaiming to you, people of God, who are so weary with their own sin, is that Jesus will save you from your sin one day, finally, forever.
that this king is not done with you now. He, he will keep on this ride with you for the rest of your life story. You have to keep coming back and repenting once more of your sin. He is in it with you the whole way. And yet, it is not all that this king will do. Because one day, this king, this son of David, this true Israelite, he will do exactly what he is intended to do from the beginning, which is to take that whiny, lying voice of the serpent and to snuff it out forever. And one day, you will stand before God free of shame. There will be no more guilt. There will be no more repentance. No more examination of my motivations. There will be freedom for the people of God forever. Because this king will not change his name. There is another story of a Joseph and Yehoshua in the Bible. The first Joseph is not here. It's in Genesis. And Joseph leads his people to redemption, but he dies in Egypt. And one of his descendants is tasked with carrying his bones from Egypt to the promised land. And so a son of his, a descendant of his, named Yehoshua, Joshua, takes up his bones into the promised land so that his forefather might be buried in the land that God provided. In a different tribe, thousands of years later, this son of Joseph will ensure that all the bones of both his forefathers and mine will be raised to life in the land forever. So that when he says that my name is Emmanuel, he will know that this Joseph and every Joseph to follow will be raised up to see this Emmanuel with their own eyes. That God will be with us not merely in spirit, but before our very eyes. As we, his people, live in light of his face forever. Jesus has come today to save you from your sin. And Jesus will not change his name until the end of time and beyond so that you might see the God who saves. In the light of his own face, all darkness will be banished. It is for him that we wait and it is before him and in him that we have all our hope. Jesus is here today. He is here to save you. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for this, the story of your redemption in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you that 
we can freely acknowledge to you and before you the darkness that we have conspired with, the darkness that presses in in the world. And God, I thank you that you are the God who is with his people, that you are the God who saves his people. And I pray that our hearts would be flung wide open to you. God, I pray for those who are here today who have insisted on wrestling with their sin all alone, for those who have refused to acknowledge the truth of their own sin because they don't want to to take a title like sinner upon themselves. But Father, I pray that they would hear the truth about themselves, they'd be able to acknowledge what they have run from and hear that there is more to be said about them. They are beloved, that you've come for them. God, I pray that they would turn away from their sin and towards you and find you there eager and entirely able to save them. And Father, I pray for those today who are here, who have heard, who have known your power, who have seen you as the king who has come close. And God, I pray that anybody whose, whose hopes are, are, are dying in their chest, who are, who are unsure if you are going to continue to be in this with them, God, I pray that they will hear that you will not change your name, that you, the one who redeems all of David's story and Israel's story, has come to indeed redeem the story of humanity, them included, and you will not give up on them. Father, I pray that they would hear the good news of Jesus the good news of the gospel that is for people like me, people like them who still yet struggle with sin, that you are the God who saves. Father, would you ruin any other hope that we might have anywhere else? Would you eliminate it and destroy it, that we might find our secure anchor in Jesus, in Jesus alone, the great shepherd of the sheep, the savior of his people, Emmanuel, God with us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.